0: Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Michael A. McFaul, the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the former United States Ambassador to the Russian Federation. McFaul is also the Director of Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. The title of his talk is Containing Putin, and it was recorded on April 20th, 2015. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to talk about containing Putin. Um, I have to keep on time. I left my watch, so somebody give me a signal at nine o'clock because uh, I got to catch a plane to go to Kiev, Ukraine, actually, today. I can't be late. Maybe I should be late. I kind of don't want to go. Um, it's a long flight. But I want to leave time for questions. So if somebody could just give me a little signal when I get to nine o'clock. Um, Today, I want to talk about containing Putin, and the title of the talk implies that I'm going to give you a strategy, an American strategy for how to deal with our current uh, confrontation with Russia and with Putin in particular. But before I do, I want to spend a little time on the prior question, which is the diagnostics, right? Before we get to the prescription, let's talk a little bit about the diagnostics. And let's talk a little bit, the first part of my talk, I want to spend just outlining how we got to this uh, rather difficult, and I would say very precarious moment in US-Russian relations. And I want to start with, I, I, don't, I don't see my neighbor here, but when I got back last year, um, one of my neighbors asked me over for lunch. You know, very neighborly, just how was your time in Moscow? What was it like to be the ambassador in Russia? And then we got to telling some stories about his time in government. Uh, my neighbor's George Schultz. And, and George started to, you know, George is a fantastic storyteller. And he started to talk about his time dealing with the Russians. It was a very different story than mine. It was about ending the Cold War. It was about trying to integrate the Soviet Union into the international system. And in particular, he talked about his good friend, Mikhail Gorbachev and his friend, Shevardnadze, the foreign minister at the time, and how they, with Ronald Reagan, of course, uh, ended the Cold War. And as I left, I used used to have a giant black limousine with four bodyguards. This time I got on my one-speed bicycle uh, to go home. I thought, what the hell happened while I was in government? Because it's exactly the opposite of George's time in government. I think you have to go deep into the Cold War to remember a time when things were so confrontational between the United States and Russia or the Soviet Union. The Russians are intervening in Eastern Europe. They're annexing territory. They're threatening us with nuclear weapons. Uh, Public opinion polls in Russia now show that 83% of Russians define us as the enemy. And for Putin, he talks about these things not just in a kind of balance of power, you know, struggle of interest, he talks about it in ideological terms, that they are fighting the imperial West and the decadent West, the West that supports Nazis in Ukraine. That's new. We haven't seen that for 40 years and maybe never in terms of the, the kind of virulent way that they talk about the United States, and I'll show you some evidence for that in a moment. Likewise, on the Western side and the American side, we're doing things that we have never done. Uh, In his speech to the United Nations last September, uh, President Obama uh, talked about the three threats, the three greatest threats in the world, being ISIS, Ebola, and Russia. That didn't go down too well in Moscow, by the way, to be on that list. We're sanctioning Russians today. Never in our history, including the entire Cold War, including eight years of the Reagan administration, has the chief of staff of the Kremlin been on a US sanctions list? That's new, that's qualitatively new. NATO is focused on Russia as a threat again after 20 years of not thinking about that. We've kicked Russia out of the G8. Out of all the turbulent times during the the George W. Bush years and even the last end of the Clinton years, that never happened, it just happened last year. Um, In other words, this is a pretty serious moment in history. It's not, in my opinion, just another blip on the screen in terms of conflict with Russia. So, what happened? How did we get from that first photo to the second photo? That's what I wanted to to explain for you now and then at the second, talk about what are we gonna do about it. So, I'm somewhere between a recovering bureaucrat and an aspiring academic again, right? But I want to talk about kind of three big theories, but are also three arguments in policy circles about how to explain this outcome. And at the one end, they're very structural arguments, which is to say that history and economics and power define history. And people, we're just kind of the agents that that reflect these structural arguments. Versus another kind of theory at the end here that, that will be my bottom line about individuals, and that individuals, of course, are shaped by their history and their circumstance, but have autonomous capacity to affect the course of history. And you're going to see that my explanation is a part of all three of these, but it really comes down to this last one. So I want you to know, I learned this, this term from General Petraeus, my bluff, my bottom line up front, is that at the end of the day, my story's really going to focus on Putin his worldview and what he's doing and therefore containing Putin, not containing Russia per se, is going to be the thing we have to focus on in terms of policy. But let me walk you through some of these other theories. So the first theory is a nature about international politics. Um, We're starting the history of Europe, we're racing through it now, we're at 1065 right now, right? And you can see that, right? so you can see borders are changing what's going on here what's going on here is that some powers are getting stronger others are getting weaker and as a result of the change in the balance of power in the international system in Europe uh, the borders are changing where are we at now we're at 1258 uh, and if I waited to the end I would burn up all my time but you get the picture here right Oh, we, Russia still hasn't come back. We're still in the golden horde, Mongols' time. Up oh, Poland's there. Oh, there goes Poland. Um, so this is one powerful theory about international politics. And the theory here applied to the contemporary uh, situation in Europe is that Russia, once again, is a rising power. Russia, once again, has power, capabilities that they lost in 1991 after the collapse of the soviet union and therefore that russia's come back and what we see happening in ukraine is just normal international politics this is just one of many quotes that you could find in academia especially popular in moscow by the way as a way to explain what is happening in terms of russia uh, in europe today now i want to be clear this is part of the explanation right Uh, Just think about uh, uh, an extreme different case. Um, uh, What's an extreme case? Uh, Monaco. Does anybody worry about Monaco invading uh, countries in Europe? No, because Monaco doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the capabilities to do it. So this rise in capabilities, which, by the way, I think is more pronounced than most of you know. It's scary how powerful the Russian military has become is a part of the explanation. Um, But I don't think it's the whole explanation for two reasons. One, I can think of other rising powers that didn't invade their neighbors. Poland and Japan after World War II are two obvious cases. Uh, I'm sorry, Germany and Japan after World War II are two obvious cases. Uh, Poland after the collapse of communism is another one. Rising power definitely has some uh, debates, shall we say, uh, with its neighbors about where those borders have been, should have been drawn. But we're not worried about those kind of conflicts. Now, if I had a longer amount of time to talk about it, I would tell you that the principal reason these countries don't threaten their neighbors is that they're democracies. And democracies are, tend to be more peaceful with other democracies on their borders. In fact, they don't go to war with each other. It's a key condition, as I'm gonna get to later, that Russia is not a democracy and therefore is more threatening to its neighbors than these democracies. But that's pretty theoretical, right? That's the noodle head academic talking there about democratic peace theory. Just the second argument is about history. When I was a US ambassador in Russia from 2012 to 2014, Putin never talked about annexing Crimea. Does anybody remember a speech that he gave that we need to bring everybody in? He didn't. It's a trick question, so don't answer. Uh, He didn't. It all happened after the words. In fact, his number one foreign policy objective in 2012 to 2014 was to create something that I'll bet most of you have never even heard of. It's called the Eurasian Economic Union. You didn't hear about it because our reporting by our journalists in Moscow was was not very. Uh, uh, it's not very good, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, and I don't, These are all my friends. I just insulted them, and I think there's a video uh, camera rolling. They're great reporters. Uh, uh, both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, by the way, they have. They, both of those papers, in particular, have terrific teams in Moscow. But they weren't reporting on this because, for two reasons. One, it's boring to report about trade and investment. Is anybody? You know, the TPP, for instance, is not exactly a page one story to write about with respect to trade in Asia. Um, But in our reporting out of the embassy, we focused on this because Putin was focused on it. The idea is very simple for him. There's something called the European Union. He wants to bring together all the former countries that emerged from the Soviet Union into this economic union with Russia at its hub. And he wanted... Ukraine, all of Ukraine, not just Crimea, to be a part of that economic union for the simple fact that they needed those 45 million consumers to make this thing hum. Has anybody here ever bought anything that wasn't an egg or caviar or vodka called made in Russia here in the United States? Just curious, what did you buy? Handmade dolls from Siberia. Okay, all right. Good answer. Good answer. So that. So. Anybody else by chance? Any computer equipment? Yeah. What else? You bought a sable coat. Okay. You saw a sable coat. Okay. You and I shop in different places. Um, <laughs> but okay, sable coat, dolls. So so there's a few fringe items, right? I mean, exotic items. I tested this proposition the other day. And down in a, in, a, in a store in Menlo Park, I bought some Russian beer, uh, Baltica Samets called. I highly do not recommend it. <laughs> not very good. It's really strong, but it's no good. But the point is, is that uh, this is why Putin needs Ukrainians in this Eurasian Economic Union, because they are a group that does buy made in Russia products. And that's, that's why he wanted to grow this thing. So, so the point is. It's not just the rise in power that, that, that you know, why, why today, 2014, do we see the annexation? Power is part of it, but it most certainly was not something happening and, and on the verge of happening just a year ago. In fact, two more data points. One is, in February of 2013, he let out of jail uh, one of his greatest enemies, Mikhail Kartakovsky. Kartakovsky, when he was arrested in 2003, was the richest man in Russia. Uh, and spent 10 years in a Russian labor camp because Putin thought he was trying to overturn his regime. He let him out recently. In fact, he just spoke at the business school last week. And when I ran into a very senior colleague of mine at the Kremlin, i asked him, you know, why'd you let Khodorkovsky out? He said that was a present to you guys to help us improve our relations. That was just two months before Putin invaded Ukraine. Moreover, the last thing, another data point. Was anybody at the Olympics by chance with me? Nobody went. Well, that's a bad sign for Russia because uh, they spent $50 billion to try to throw a, a world-class party. And it was a world-class party, by the way. It was a fantastic party. I, I went twice for the opening and closing. And, and one of, I don't know if it was worth for $50 billion, by the way, um, but it was uh, an, an very interesting event in, in two respects from my point of view. One was, the message was, we're not the old Soviet Union of the 1980 Olympics. We're the new Russia. And, and one thing really struck me, they had 20,000 college kids in these very colorful outfits, basically being as friendly as possible to foreigners like me. Uh, by the way, I was a rock star there. I did like 500 uh, you know, uh, photos and, and selfies with kids because they wanted to be photographed with the US ambassador, also different from 1980. Um, the second thing, however, was one of the closing skits or, or pieces that they did for the closing ceremonies. They had come across the field um, placards or drawings of Russian artists, about 50 of them, by the way. Just, just parenthetically, how many countries could pull that off? I mean, think about it. 50, Fifty authors that we, they would flip up and then 40,000 people in the stands would applaud. I'm not sure we could pull that off in the United States, but there aren't that many countries that have that kind of cultural uh, legacy. Two of them really struck out at me, though. Brodsky and Solzhenitsyn. Brodsky and Solzhenitsyn. This was the new Russia. They were claiming those two authors as part of the new Russia, not the Soviet Union. So that was literally a week before he invaded Ukraine. So we gotta have something else to to, to into the story to explain the whole story. All right, second explanation. A big one in academia and in Washington and most certainly in Moscow. It's all our fault. It's all our fault. We caused this all. Uh, We made Putin invade Ukraine. And here's the litany, right? We told them they had to develop markets. We told them they had to develop democracy. We expanded NATO, we bombed Serbia, we invaded Iraq, we fomented revolutions around the world, and therefore Putin just had to respond to all of our aggressiveness. That's why he invaded Ukraine. Now, there's a kernel of truth to this explanation as well. And most certainly, you've heard me over the decades here speak about uh, my worries about how we weren't going to engage enough with the reformers in Russia, and therefore there'd be a backlash, and then therefore, like, uh, I I once wrote an article, this article, you probably can't read it, but um, it was the first op-ed I ever wrote, and I compared the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, and the Soviet Revolution, uh, and talked about how their dynamics would be the same. By the way, the publication date here is August 19th, 1990, exactly one year to the date before the August 1991 coup. When you hear people say that there weren't some people predicting the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's historical record that some of us working here at the Hoover Institution were talking about this. Uh, But I was worried that we wouldn't understand how big the event was, we would disengage, and like Napoleon in the French Revolution, like Stalin in the Bolshevik Revolution, there would be, in this Thermidor period, this person promising Uh, to clean up corruption and be a strong hand to kind of clean up the chaos. And tragically, that was Putin. And so this dynamic was real. But in between all those nasty things here, right, this list that allegedly caused the war in Ukraine between Russia uh, and Ukraine, there are a bunch of cooperative things that happened when I was in government. This is President Obama and Medvedev signing the START treaty in Prague, 2010. We signed that treaty, eliminating 30% of our nuclear arsenals. We developed something called the Northern Distribution Network, which you probably never heard of, but it's a supply route to our troops in Afghanistan, through the north, through Russia, and Central Asian countries. Uh, the Bush administration started this. Uh, when we came in, it was about 2% of our supplies. When I left government, it was 50% of our supplies. First time, I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think it's the first time since World War II where American soldiers were flying through Russian airspace. Um, and this was vital to our war effort and to our anti-our counterterrorism effort because before we developed MDN, 95% of our supplies went through Pakistan. And you'll recall that in 2011, we did an extra territorial operation in Pakistan against Osama bin Laden. And in response, the Pakistanis closed our supply routes uh, for a time. Had it been at 95%, I'm sure that it would've been a lot harder to go after Osama bin Laden. Third, we put in sanctions against Iran, the most comprehensive set of sanctions ever against Iran. Russia supported that. And fourth, we managed things that you probably never heard about. Does anybody remember the the great regime change revolution of 2010 in the former Soviet space? Where 100 people died, 300,000 people left uh, the country. Uh, I was in charge of Central Asia at the time at the NSC and without question, this was the scariest moment of my time in government because I thought we were about to preside over genocide in Kyrgyzstan but you never heard about it because it actually didn't happen. The 100 people died, but together with Russians, we worked to solve this problem as opposed to have a confrontation about it like we're doing in Ukraine. This is just four years ago, American and Russian soldiers doing counter-terrorist exercises in Colorado. Economic ties, there's the former president, our former governor at Cisco uh, at a time when he was trying to develop economic ties with the valley, Uh, We got them into the WTO, we increased trade, we increased uh, visas for business people. The numbers are modest, but they were moving in the right direction. Uh, The the point of all these slides, and lastly here, look at this. In 2010, 60% of Russians had a positive view of the United States of America. It's 83 negative now. Just four years ago, it was 60% positive. By the way, same thing in our country. 60% 60% of Americans back in 2010 had a positive view of Russia. So you can't explain all of uh, the, the, the current predicament, our current confrontation, by things that happened before all of this cooperative things, right? That just doesn't make sense in terms of a causal argument. So something has to be added to the story in order to understand the confrontation now. And that gets me to my last variable, Russian domestic politics. Two things here in particular are important. The change from Medvedev to Putin and uh, political demonstrations in Russia in 2011 and 2012. Now, this is the party congress where President, uh, Prime Minister Putin announced that he's gonna run for office to be president again. And he's telling President Medvedev Uh, sorry buddy, you've been just demoted. Um, The story is he only told him the night before and he wouldn't let him leave his house because he didn't want Medvedev to go back home to his wife who was against this little deal. I don't know if that's true, but that's the story that was in Moscow. Anyway, this happened in September 2011 where they just switched jobs. My initial reaction to this was it shouldn't change anything, right? Because Medvedev's uh, always been the puppet to Putin when he was prime minister. Putin's always been calling the shots. That was wrong. Uh, that turned out to be wrong. It turned out that these two guys have a pretty different view of the world. And the essence of it is, is that Medvedev is younger. Medvedev thought cooperation with the West was in Russia's national interest. By the way, not unlike Gorbachev 30 years earlier. He thought that it was better for Russia, not as a friend, friendship to us, but just better for Russia for them to integrate with the West. Putin sees the world differently. He sees us, you, as the enemy. He sees everything in zero-sum terms, if it's plus two for America, minus two for Russia. And most particularly, he is paranoid about us using our power, our military, and especially our CIA, to overthrow regimes that we don't like. By the way, there's some empirical data to support that hypothesis over the last seven decades of American history. I want to be clear about that. But he is super paranoid about it and assigns just incredible powers to the CIA. Now, the CIA is powerful. Uh, The head of the CIA is a good friend of mine, but they don't do nearly the things that Putin thinks they do, but he blames them for it. He blames us for these things that happen in the world. So just the change between those two gentlemen actually had a big impact in terms of Russia's relations with the West. But the second thing that happened was in between Putin's announcement that he was going to run for president in September of 2011 and the election in March of 2012, there was a parliamentary election in December 2011. It was falsified just like all other Russian elections for the last 20 years. It's kind of the same range, you know, 3 to 5%, no big deal, normal. But this time, there was a middle class that had emerged over the last decade of growth in Russia. This time, there were smartphones that could take photos of this falsification and then spin it around Russia very quickly on things like Twitter and Facebook and Vkontakte. And that pissed these people off. And they said, we're not gonna take this anymore. They initially, 5,000 of them protested falsified election, and later, you can see this crowd, there's about 100,000 people, began to protest against Putin's regime. And his reaction initially was he's pissed off. He was re- I, I saw him a few times during this period. He was like, I made these people rich, and now they're turning against me. Now, the truth is, is oil and gas prices made them rich. Uh, it just so happened he was president at the time. But that's you know, most presidents, whether they're American or Russian, if it happens on your watch, you take credit for it. And that was his view. His second reaction was to crack down on these people and to repress these people. And that's where we came in. Because he said that these are enemies of, of Russia. They're a fifth column. They're not patriots. We need to contain them. And many of them were arrested. But he also said they were puppets of the United States puppets of Washington and puppets of me personally. Um, In fact, one of their leaders, uh, Alexei Navalny, he's probably the leading opponent of the Putin regime right now. This is just a typical quote from Russian news uh, uh, during this period. They accused me of creating this guy, Navalny. By the way, one time uh, there was another piece, I don't have a slide from it. Uh, Navalny spent six months at Yale and they said, well obviously McFall sent him to Yale, and I tweeted back, I, I, I'm on Twitter, if you're interested, you can follow me. I said, why would a Stanford guy ever send somebody to Yale? Um, and I'm in good company here, by the way. It's Gorbachev and myself that are the, the guys making this project. And there I am again, uh, 2012. This is a calendar put out in English and Russian, and every month of the calendar is a different opposition leader. And these are McFall's girls, that's what they were accused of. Here's another, you probably can't see this or read it, but this is a poster that was all around Moscow on May 6, 2012. It says, coming back to the stage, the political circus, and I'm I'm there if you can't see me, um, and around me are all the opposition leaders in Russia, and I'm called the artistic director of their demonstration that was planned for that day, at which uh, dozens of people were arrested uh, that day. Here I am again, uh, through the power of Photoshop, I am campaigning for Alexei Navalny. That's what I'm doing there, that's, that's what that says in Russian. He ran for mayor uh, in the fall of 2013. By the way, with zero money and no access to television, he got a, a, almost 30% of the vote. Uh, quite an impressive uh, campaign, but not because of me. And then finally, I just want to give you a flavor. You don't need to speak Russian to get a flavor for what this is like. But this is a typical clip from the Russian media at the time I was ambassador. Just listen and watch the, the, the photos for a bit.
1: Straсти по Макфолу. В российской оппозиции паника увольняют посла США в России Майкла Макфола. Информированные источники из внешнеполитического ведомства сообщили прессе, что последним мероприятием посла, скорее всего, станет день 80-летия установления дипломатических отношений России и США. 16 ноября. Назначение Макфола в 2011 году стало настоящим праздником для российской несистемной оппозиции. В США он имел репутацию выдающегося специалиста по так называемым цветным революциям. Сразу после прибытия Макфола в Москву резко активизировалась деятельность так называемого протестного движения. Маргиналы из карликовых организаций от анархистов до откровенных нацистов стали выходить на улицы, драться с полицией и
0: даже on Russian television today. Not just once or twice, every day. Uh, Here, the President of the United States ideology is being compared to the leader of ISIS. All right, nine o'clock, I got it, I'll wrap up. Um, So that's why we are in this confrontation with Russia. Not because of global politics, not because of US policy, but because of Putin's paranoia about his own legitimacy internally inside Russia. And the last straw that broke the Campbell's back was, of course, the collapse of the government in Ukraine last February. We had nothing to do with that. We actually tried to prevent it. Putin blamed us, and he struck back as a result. That's why he went into Crimea. The good news, there's no master design. Uh, This was a tactical, emotional decision by Putin to give him a new argument for why he should stay in power. That's what he did in Ukraine. He hasn't been dreaming for three decades about recreating the Russian Empire. I don't believe that. Moreover, the good news is that I don't believe there's a historical or cultural reason that we are bound to be in conflict with Russia for decades to come. My story is about individuals, not about this long-term history. The bad news, Russia will not change while Putin is in power. He can stay in power till 2024, and he works out three hours a day. The question, and maybe we can get into this in in questions in time, is whether we will understand it properly and whether we will have the staying power to contain uh, uh, Russia under Putin. And I'm not so sure about that, but maybe we can talk about that in questions. All right, thank you very much. For more podcasts and ChartCasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, and Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.